I have, yeah, I have one thing to tell you. Well, I have two things. One means nothing to you, but I had the, the worst scare this week. Um, so Joy Schneider, who oversees like the snacks and stuff that I could put out there, when if you guys bring like some cookies or something, because I don't eat cookies on a Sunday morning, because you eat the sugar and then you crash, and then I'll be like, let's open Ecclesiastes. And so I don't try to do that. So she's nice enough that usually when she does, she'll pull a couple cookies, put them in a bag, and throw them in the freezer in the kitchen. Don't go get them. So this week, so she tells me, oh, yeah, I got your cookie. It's great. So I go into the kitchen on Tuesday morning. I'm hankering for a cookie. Right? And I walk in there, and they're not there. Not cool. So I go around everybody, and I'm like, did you eat my cookies? Did you eat my cookies? Did you eat my cookies? And, and lo and behold, they reappeared. Okay. I'm not saying who because I don't know who, but, but, Corey, but Corey's like, oh, well, uh, did you look behind the ice cream? I'm like, yes, I looked behind the ice cream. But he's all, well, that's where they were. I'm like, that's not where they were. But anyway, <laughs> now Travis, I almost had a heart attack. Someone stole my cookies. It's a big deal. You know how it is. See, see, <laughs> they agree. They're like, I'm a cookie. Uh, I, okay, so my one real thing to tell you about, not that that wasn't real, but uh, I, one real thing to you about is baptisms are coming up. And at Element, we try and do two large baptisms a year. And again, like we did last year, this year we're going to kind of do the same thing again. On Labor Day weekend, we're going to do one where we invite all of you guys to come to it. We're going to do like tri-tip and bread and all the stuff that you know gives you a heart attack. And we're going to try and get you know, a big one there. But... We have also found that there are some people who are scared of large crowds, and they would like to be baptized, but they really get worried about in front of a lot of people. So in April, right about there, we're going to do a smaller baptism. Uh, and, and if you are someone who has ever said, I don't really, I really want to get baptized in front of all these people, I can't do it. it, it scares me to death, but you'd be willing to do it in front of a smaller group, then sign up at the Welcome Center, we'll get a hold of you, we're going to do a small one in April, and then a large one, and if you, if you don't mind waiting, and you want to do it in front of a large group of people, then please, please, please do it at the Labor Day one in September, but if you really have a hard time with crowds and stuff, then do the other one, and it'll be great. But we want to give you the opportunity at Element to be baptized because it's one of the things that Jesus calls us to. Some people say, what does Jesus want me to do? Well, one of the things he clearly said in the scriptures is get baptized. So that's one of the things we do around here. So if you want to get baptized. All right, welcome to Element. Uh, If you are new, don't steal my cookies. Uh, But we we will give you a Bible. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you get some uh, notes and questions that go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about. There's also some announcements on the back. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and Then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 13. It says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who understand that gain that there is in wisdom, but then wisdom is not the thing that brings satisfaction to our life. And that we'd be a people who come to a place where we trust you for all that we are. That we would understand the good news of your rescue of us from all the things that we put our hope in that are not you. And that you would bring us back to a place where we understand your great grace given to us, bringing us back into relationship with you so we can actually live and find meaning and satisfaction in this life that you've given us. Amen. Have a seat. 
All right, so we are in Ecclesiastes. This is week five. I found it interesting in uh, my computer, it was still telling me I was misspelling Ecclesiastes by week five. But I think that's just because I type with two fingers like this, and I probably type like this too fast, and so it messes it up, and I mess it up, and it's got to fix it which is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything to you anyway. But okay. uh, if you've been here the last four weeks, I am glad that you guys are still smiling again. Like I said last week, I'm glad you're going to be happy and chipper because many times Ecclesiastes tends to be a depressing book for a lot of people on the surface. Uh, in a couple weeks, we are going to move on into some more happy stuff. It, it's not all rainbows and bunnies because Solomon never really gets there, but it is a little bit more than just meaningless like it is today. Now, I called today the focus on vapor because vapor means meaningless. It means vanity. This is what Solomon comes back to all of the time. In the short verses today, he's going to focus on his own wisdom. And when he runs after his own wisdom, it becomes meaningless. This life under the sun, the life in the created realm, that which we create becomes meaningless because we do it apart from God, even when we're running after wisdom. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's going to take us a while to get there. Uh, but Ecclesiastes 2 verses 1 through 11, we looked at last week, and that was where Solomon talked about the pleasures of life. This week he's going to talk about wisdom. Next week we will talk about work. And not that any of those things are bad in and of themselves, but apart from God, when we just seek after those things, they all become meaningless. Uh, I have said before, Ecclesiastes is part of what we call the wisdom literature, uh, but it's also a lot different than the rest of the wisdom literature that you read. And so today I want to give you a little background on what the wisdom literature is before we move into talking about Solomon's wisdom and that kind of stuff. Uh, Most of the wisdom literature, I've told you this before, is like A plus B equals C. You do this, you do this, and this is the outcome. But Ecclesiastes really is A plus B doesn't equal anything you thought because sometimes life doesn't work out the way that you think. If you ask a lot of people today what their favorite verse in the Bible is, well, give me a life verse, something you really think about. If it's in the Old Testament, it typically comes from one of these wisdom books. Now, the wisdom books in the Old Testament, they are five books. It is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, or it's called Song of Solomon. Many times these books are loved because they're a lot unlike the other books. They're not historical narrative. They are narrative, but they're more individual. They don't really go, there was a battle here, and these people died, and this is where it was at. It's more people's lives and what they kind of went through and kind of what resonates. And so it's narrative in a sense, but not in the sense of here's where this battle is and stuff like that. It kind of resonates more with us in a Western mindset actually. So we get to take part in their joy and their sorrow and their hard times and their good times. Uh, Even the men and women that get spoken of in these texts, they are very uh, human in their response to how they encounter things. And I think it's really easier for us to grasp and lay hold of that wisdom. Now, each of these books in the wisdom literature are a bit different in its own purpose. Like you have the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is wisdom leading to a successful life per se. That's the A plus B equals C. If you want to be successful, whether you're in business or a student, whatever it is, however things fall in life, you kind of want to live the successful life. That's what Proverbs tries and tells you. A plus B equals C. It addresses everything from money to relationships to character. You have the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms are poetry and they're songs of individuals that are crying out and singing to God. Much of them are written by a guy named King David who is Solomon's dad, the guy that wrote Ecclesiastes. Some of them are attributed to Solomon than some other people. But David is a lot like us when you read the Psalms because David will say things like, how long, O Lord, will you forsake me? And then two lines later, he will say, how great are you to be so near me? 
It's kind of like us. We bounce all over the place a lot depending on our life circumstance. And Psalms, I think, is really David's inner workings to talk himself off the metaphorical ledge at times. I think anyone who has ever been honest about walking with Jesus in our lives knows at times there is a gap between what our head knows to be true and what our heart feels to be true. And I think in the book of Psalms, it's a lot of times David trying to bring his heart back in line with what his head knows. Like David will say things like, why are you so so downcast, O my soul, like in my heart, put your hope in God. Uh, This is in Psalm 42, verse 5, 42, verse 11, 43, verse 5. It's like he knows what is right here. But life circumstance happens and he gets sad or depressed. or think, And so he's trying to remind his heart who God really is, which I think we could all use at times because many times our heart doesn't want to join us where our heads are. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, just making sure. Uh, then you have the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. We did a series through this a few years ago called The Summer of Love. It's online. Song of Songs is a book about sex and love and the celebration of sex and love in a good way. Uh, some places are graphic, but it is never lewd or inappropriate. It's very frank, though. Uh, so much so that young Hebrew boys were never allowed to read the Song of Solomon until they got a little bit older. And then you have the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Matt Chandler says this, these two books form one lesson from two opposite sides of the spectrum. And so you have the book of Job. Uh, We're going to spend eight weeks in Job next year, so be ready for that. You won't remember I told you that, but whatever. Uh, Job is a story of an accuser. And he comes and he stands before God. And he says, I've been looking over this earth at all the people you've created, and they are a hot mess. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Now, I think if Job would have known this conversation with what's going on, Job would have been like, just leave me out of it. <laughs> I'm okay, okay? Just, but he does so God says, have you considered my servant Job? And the accuser says, you know what? G- give me a break. You've so blessed him in his life. You've given him everything. Of course, he's the one guy that's not a hot mess. And so the accuser gets God's permission to go and touch Job and certain things in his life. Now, in the New Testament, when Peter's about to be tempted, Jesus says to him in Luke 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. What this tells you in the book of Job and what Jesus says, there's not this cataclysmic battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. It's that Satan's like a little runt, and he has to go and get permission from God. God, can I bother him? And God will say, sometimes say things like, well, yeah, only because it will grow his people in faith and grace and bring people back to him. And so the book of Job tells us in the cool of the morning, Job is walking in his garden, and a servant runs up and says, the savings have come, and they've attacked and killed all of his donkeys and oxen and servants, and this guy is the only one that escaped. Before that one finishes speaking, another servant comes up and says, fire fell from the sky and burned up all your sheep and killed all your servants except for me. It is a bad day when things fall to the sky and kill your sheep. Okay. Uh, another one comes uh, says uh, says uh, the the Chaldeans have come and the Chaldeans have have taken all of your livestock and and struck all of your servants. And I'm the only one that who has escaped. And then before that one finishes speaking, another comes up and says all of your children were in your oldest son's house eating lunch, and a wind came up against the house and the house collapsed, and all your children are dead. And what Job does at this point, the scripture says he tears his clothes. And he begins to worship God even in the midst of all of his pain. And you get this famous line. Whether you're a Christian or not, ever been to church before or not, a lot of people have heard this. Job 1.21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job is like, God, this is terrible, but everything I have is yours, and I'm going to trust you in the midst of this. Now, this infuriates Job's wife, who goes the bitter route, and where Job says, Everything I have or ever will have is yours. She looks at Job in Job 2.9 and says, Just curse God and die, right? And so Job prays, God, please give me the camels back and take her. <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't, right? He might have thought it, 
But anyway, and so, and so, you know, Job is still praising God. The accuser goes back to God, and he says, you know what? You know, he might still be praising you, but if I, you let me take his health away from him, he's not going to praise you. And God says, okay, go ahead. And the devil will come and strike Job with boils, and Job is destitute, sitting on this ash heap, and dogs are licking his sores. But in the end, Job comes to realize that we have no hope on this earth and earthly things, that our only hope is beyond the sun. It's only beyond the sun. And that's really kind of the book of Job. Uh, there's a lot of reasonings behind that all takes place, so come back next year if you want to find out all about that. But you get to Ecclesiastes, right? And Ecclesiastes is the opposite side of this. It's for people who do not respond like Job. It's for people who look at the world around them and always think there is something else out there. If life wasn't like this, if I had more money or if I had more power or more friends or a better religion or my parents weren't so mean to me, if I had grown up in a different place, if I could just get this. It's kind of like the people who walk around bummed out going, curse God and die. That's what it's for. It's where people who have created in their own mind this idea that somewhere over the rainbow, the grass is greener on the other side of the hill if I can just get there. And so Ecclesiastes becomes more than just a life story, but though you do see some of Solomon's life story, but it's much more. He's wanting to teach us something that he has learned in his wisdom, in his wisdom. And what does he learn? That on this earth, under the sun, everything apart from God is meaningless. Pleasure, wealth, stuff, work, even his own wisdom apart from God is meaningless. Now, last week what I did... So I walked you through verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. I'm going to read you those again, and then we're going to read the verses we're looking at today so you have it all in context, and then we're going to talk about it. So Ecclesiastes 2, see, we finally got there, verses, starting verse 1. Solomon says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure. What use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how do I hold on folly till I might see what was good? Good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and that slaves who were born in my own house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept, my, from, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." So that's last week. If you missed it, it's online. We had a lot of fun with it. This week, starting in verse 12, he goes to, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for of the wises of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Wow. Bummer, 
right? Totally. So what Solomon does in verses 12 through 17 is goes back to something he looked at before in chapter 1. He says, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. In chapter 1, verse 13, he's trying to search out by wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 17, he applies his heart to know wisdom and madness and folly. He keeps coming back to this idea of wisdom after he chases this other stuff, and he keeps saying, why isn't this working? Why isn't my wisdom working? I've got so much of it, it should be able to straighten all of these things out. Now, I have a perfect example of this because it happened to me this week, and it deals with cookies. Okay, So sometimes I get this craving for cookies, and when I get a craving for cookies, the first place I go to and I look in is the cookie jar. Do you know why? Right, it's got cookie in the name. Okay, so you go to the cookie jar. Are you going to keep cookies somewhere? You keep them in the cookie jar. But for some reason, there's never any cookies in the cookie jar, but I always start there. So there's nothing in the cookie jar. So then what I do is I go and I look in the pantry, and there's no cookies in the pantry. So you know what I do? I go back to the cookie jar. Like, maybe I missed it. Maybe the air solidified in the cookies somehow, and, and they're not there. So then what I do is I go to the fridge or the cabinet above the stove or out to the garage where we keep the overflow canned goods and stuff like that, or the freezer element, because they disappear there too. But, and then after I can't find it, you know what I do? I go back to the cookie jar. It's, I don't know why. It just, I go back to the cookie jar, but that's what I do. Because if cookies should be anywhere, they should be in the cookie jar. Solomon says, this is what our life is like. We keep doing the same thing, having these terrible results, thinking, well, if I just do it again, it will work out this time. I know some people who date the same kind of person over and over and over, and it keeps falling apart. And I'm like, Oh, my goodness. Uh, How many married couples have the same fight and you fight the exact same way, thinking it's going to turn out different different this time? (laughs) Right? Oh, no. She'll she'll really listen to me when I say it like this this time. (laughs) Nope. Didn't. He'll really hear if I do it like this. No, and we keep arguing the same way. Oh, if I just get that job, we keep running after a certain type of job, and it doesn't work out. Well, it'll work out if I do it over here. And we keep over and over and over and over. This is what Solomon says about wisdom. He goes, I keep coming back to my wisdom. My wisdom should be able to fix all of these nagging things in my life, the wrongness with the world that I feel. Yes, my wisdom should be able to figure that out. Wisdom says, eat good food, drink pure, filtered, bottled water, exercise, don't drink light beer, and it's all meaningless in the end. It's all meaningless. That's what he's trying to say. Madness and folly. Like Shakespeare in Macbeth. He, Shakespeare says, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury. Right? Solomon says, madness and folly puts it together like, like Shakespeare puts you know, sound and fury together. It's this idea when you can't speak, and you just roar and groan because you're so frustrated with things around you. So he says, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Almost every commentator does not know what to do with this line. Like one commentator says in the Hebrew text, this line makes no sense as it stands. I think it totally does. I think it makes sense of everything that the book of Ecclesiastes comes and talks about. Michael Eaton translates this like this. Literally, he says it's, And I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what kind of person is it who will come after the king, meaning Solomon, in the manner of what has already been done? When he talks of what has already been done, it's the understanding of the meaning of life. The people who will ask the question about the meaning of life and things done under the sun. He's looking ahead to those people who will ask those questions. You know who those people are? Us. You made it into the Bible. You're welcome. 
It's amazing, right? He wants to write a definitive statement about these people when they ask these questions that come after him about wisdom and madness and folly. And here you get a little glimmer of hope. It's the first place he's kind of gone at this bit. Verse 13, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Up until now, it has been meaningless, 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 but for now, for a moment, he praises wisdom. But what he tells you is wisdom is is not going to be able to straighten out all of life or, or bring back what is missing or crooked and those things. But it it's, could even be that the more wisdom you have, the more sorrow and vexation you have because you understand more stuff in the world that's going on around you. But what he says is wisdom is better than folly. It's better than the alternative. Just like last week when we talked about pleasure, pleasure is better than pain. It just is. You don't have to get a counsel to figure out if pleasure or pain is better. Pleasure is better. So he says wisdom is better than folly. And so he juxtaposes wisdom and folly and light and darkness. Like you might think you are so smart and that you know everything. When the lights go out, you're still going to stumble over furniture and smack your shin into things and get really angry and say words you shouldn't say. You don't know as much as you think you do. And then he goes right back to it, though. And yet I perceive that the same event, the NIV will use the word fate here, the same fate happens to all of them. And what that refers to is life's up and downs, and ultimately it refers to death, which is the great equalizer. He says, you may have wisdom, it's a good thing to have, but you will still have ups and downs in your life. And there will still be death that comes for you one day. But all things being equal, wisdom is actually better. And the next verse he will go to, and he'll be like, so why not just opt out of school in the first grade and then, and then sin like crazy and forget about it? He says, because the world is dark, but wise people are those who actually have their eyes open. Fools have them closed. With your eyes open, it doesn't necessarily make it less dark, but you're able to sometimes see better the pitfalls that are around you. He says, it is better to be wise than stupid. It's better to be well-read and thoughtful and attentive to life than be ignorant and oblivious to everything around you. To go through life with no goals is not good. You should have goals even if you never reach or attain those goals. It's good still to have goals. It is true that what happens to nice, thrifty, helpful, lovable people is the same thing that happens to brutal, arrogant, mean people. The same thing. And we look at this and we have issues with it. I mean, if you look around the world and you're really honest, sometimes you will say that if certain people weren't around, life would be easier. Like if all the people who couldn't drive were just gone, you thin the herd, I could get places a lot quicker. Right? And so you think maybe some people were gone, it might be easier. But what about the nice people? What about people who, who vote the way that I do and think the way that, that I think? Those who know how to use the self-checkout and the roundabouts and don't write checks at Costco. What about those people, right? Dude... Do they deserve to die? Solomon's answer is yes. And you get to the New Testament, and this is what the Apostle Paul says, Romans 3.23, of all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve death. That's what he says. Verse 15, And I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So Solomon starts to come out of his doldrums and again right back into it again. Sadness, madness, folly, death, everything's a bummer. Because when you look at your own wisdom and base your life upon your own wisdom, it's going to turn into meaningless vapor. That's all that it is. It's not that wisdom is bad to have. It's very good to have. But on its own, it doesn't bring the answer. 
the smartest people in the world, those who know dozens of languages, those who can sequence the human genome and make it look like Spider-Man's actually swinging through a city on a little thread in a movie, those people, and the dumbest who can't balance their checkbook or, or stay in a relationship for more than two days and who think bacon's actually good for you. I mean, I like bacon, but I know it's not good for me, right? They all end up in the same spot. Psalm 49, verse 10, For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish. When Solomon thinks about this, at a place in his life where he's facing his own mortality, that's why he says, I said in my heart. He starts to reflect in the innermost way that only a person who understands the mortality can start to think about. Solomon looks at his life, and he sees all these things he pursued, and he's like, none of these things were really worth it. I could have just really spent my life trusting God for what he said in the first place, but I didn't do that. It is believed that Solomon wrote many of the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 10 7, it says this, The memory of the righteous is a blessing. That's the idea that it will go on after them. But the name of the wicked will rot. See, now after Solomon is old and depressed, he starts to look back on these things. And so it's probably decades after he wrote that. Now this is what he writes in Ecclesiastes 2.16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. See, that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. Guys, that is so true. Who won the Super Bowl five years ago? Probably the Patriots. I mean, I don't know, right? <laughs> okay, ten years ago, right? <laughs> or, or who'd they play, right? How about that? Who'd they play? Uh, who, was, who was the vice president, you know, so many years ago? It's like we don't remember these things. Who won the Nobel Prize ten years ago or five years ago or last year? We, we don't know these things. See, in the, in the book, where do we go from here? John Blatchard recounts a story where Alexander the Great uh, finds Diogenes. Diogenes is a, is a philosopher who is very wise in his age, but you've never heard of him, so it just proves Solomon's point right there. But he finds, uh, Alexander the Great finds Diogenes in this field looking at this pile of bones. So Alexander asks, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? And Diogenes wants to teach Alexander a lesson. And so this is what he says. I am searching for the bones of your father, but I cannot seem to distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. It's this idea that we will all die. It's meant to give some perspective. That's what Solomon is trying to do. I mean, Solomon's words, I don't think they're necessarily meant just to be a bummer. The reminder that this quest to find meaning uh, under the sun in what we do in our lives on our own is fruitless. And his conclusion in these few verses is this, verse 17, so I hated life. Now, that word hated right there, it refers to a foe that you're fighting against. He's fighting against life as God called him to because he's trying to do it on his own. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I think today a lot of Christians get to a place where they have anger towards atheists or agnostics when I think we should have great sadness for them. Because people are broken, and when they are honest, they sound like Solomon. Like, uh, one of the world's most famous atheists is this guy named Voltaire. A couple centuries ago he lived, but he writes to a friend, and this is what he says. I hate life, yet I'm afraid to die. C.S. Lewis, who we always quote as this great Christian thinker, before he was a Christian, he was an atheist, a very brilliant one. And he wrote this poem as an atheist. Not a lot of people quote C.S. Lewis as an atheist, but here you go. Okay? He says this, Come, let us curse our master, that's God, ere we die, like before we die. For all our hopes in endless ruin lie. The good is, uh, the good is dead, let us curse God most high. You know who he sounds like? Job's wife. That's who he sounds like. 
uh, Francois Marriott won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1952, and he doesn't believe in God. And after he won the Nobel Prize, this is what he writes. You can't imagine the torment of having nothing out of life and having nothing to look forward to but death. Or having nothing to look forward to, nothing but death. A feeling there is no other world beyond this one. That puzzle will never be explained. You know who he sounds like? Solomon. That's who he sounds like. See, this is life under the sun. When life rests solely in our hands and what we do, it is utterly and totally meaningless. And if we see this life only as a man-centered paradigm, we'll look at this life and hate it because ultimately it is meaningless. This is why the scriptures show us where meaning and hope actually is. It's why we look at Ecclesiastes asking all of these questions and where it's steering us towards so we would understand the good news and the hope of the gospel. Guys, our, our meaning doesn't come in our, in our quest to find meaning. It's that our God came to find us because we were lost. Listen to these words. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This is the Apostle Paul. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, I would say not under the sun, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life was hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That is not meant to make us want to be monks and go live on mountains and chant songs and live a life of asceticism where we get rid of everything that's around us. It's meant to give us a greater perspective because of Jesus' rescue of us where we are. We get to be a people who can actually see the meaning in the midst of hardship. We see hope even when we have unanswered questions. We see life even while we are confronted with death because he is the way, the truth, and the life. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, Paul says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. These words are meant to be a perspective that opens us up to what life is truly meant to be where we can love God and the life that he has given us instead of hate the life he's given us. Solomon is getting to where Paul talks about in his writings. And this is, stop looking down. Stop nasal-gazing. Look up to what God is actually doing. Because when we do this, we see Jesus, who is the perfection of all wisdom. In Colossians 2, 1 through 3, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All that Solomon sought, all that we seek, is found in the person of Jesus. Again, Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Guys, because Jesus is alive, the grave is not the end. It is not the end for those who are wise enough to actually trust him. Solomon hates life because he sees his death as the end to all of his wisdom and all the things that he did. That is only the earthly perspective. There is true life that goes on beyond the grave, and it can actually start here and now. When I was writing the book of Ecclesiastes, we were going through this series last year at Element called Didn't See That Coming. It was all about the good news of the gospel. And at the end of every single one of these messages, I would take the entire message and sum it up in what I call a gospel statement. And because I was in the midst of doing it, I figured, why not write one for this? So I made a gospel statement for this week in Ecclesiastes. This is what I put. There it is. The gospel is the good news that in Jesus, our wisdom isn't the only wisdom or the best wisdom. He has come to rescue us from our self-focused and self-centered way of life so our perspective sees beyond the sun to truly see the sun. 
and be made new again. See what I did there? Sun to sun? Yeah, right. Colossians 3.3 says this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You know the word hidden there? It's where we get our word encryption today. And what it tells us is that the Father so preserves us in the Son that nothing essential to who we are is lost forever. God remembers us when we even hardly ever remember Him. It is why that everything that happens in our life doesn't have to be meaningless because everything you go through is so encrypted by God, it's so kept by Him that nothing you have gone through is ever meaningless. Throughout the course of eternity, God doesn't get rid of who you are and the things that you've learned now. It makes you uniquely who you are, so you worship Him in a unique way. Nothing unique to who you are is ever lost. And this is different than any other religion in the world. God wants you individually unique to be who you are and then us to come together corporately and worship him together. And I don't know what things you've been through in your life, but I think we've all had horrible things and great things both happen to us. God can redeem those horrible things. And God can put a new spin on those great things. And we can be a people who take everything we've ever known and ever learned and live that out for the rest of eternity because the good news of the gospel is that God rescues us where we are from our self-imposed meaninglessness and takes all that we are and puts us back into who we're supposed to be and takes us out into eternity. Our God is great and good. And nothing has to be meaningless. This is one of the reasons we talk about communion every week. It's a reminder that Jesus came and that Jesus died and rose from the grave. You break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. It's a remembrance of that. It's that his body was broken, so we break the cracker. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me to take away all that separated us from God in relationship with him and one another so our lives can actually have meaning because of what he's done. Taking communion is a remembrance that everything in life that we ever experience actually is not meaningless. And there can be great hope and restoration in what God does. The band's going to come up as they do. I'm going to invite you to take communion. Uh, There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you need prayer, maybe if you're in a place in your life today where you have some circumstance going on, you're thinking, how could God ever redeem this? What could God do? What could God teach me you know, through the course of eternity from this thing that's going on? They would love to pray with you about that. I mean, if there's really anything in your life that's going on you would like someone to pray with, they would love to do that with you. But today, really, it's that, that understanding that nothing that we have gone through in the end is going to be meaningless. God will take all things and restore all things and bring us to the people he intends for us to be because that's what God does. God renews, redeems, restores the good news of the gospel of his rescue of us bringing us back in again because he is good. Uh, there's offering boxes next to all the doors we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We do not pass the plate. It's a response to what he's done. Uh, there's some food outside. Hope it's not soggy and wet. Uh, grab some sermon notes. Maybe uh, ask some of those questions in the sermon notes of one another. Maybe a, a question in your life, like what in your life could you see that uh, how could God ever bring redemption from this thing? Like how could God ever use that? Maybe talk to other people about it and get some other perspectives in it. Maybe talk about the, the joyous thing you've ever experienced in your life. And how maybe these things have shaped you to who you are today. And how God can take and use those things of where you are right now to go into eternity of worship of who he is, taking all the things that you've ever been through or experienced and redeem all of those things. As it's like I keep saying that God is good. So often we forget how good he actually is. And we think that all the things that we've gone through or ran after are meaningless. In Christ, they aren't. They aren't. 
there's hope and life and amazing goodness that we get to experience, again, because our God is good. So I'd encourage you this week to, to live with your hope, not under the sun, but in God's son, who rescues and redeems, and our lives will be bowed to him and his goodness and his grace. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us, not just this week, but for the rest of our lives, of your grace that has been given and bestowed upon us. And that we'd be able to look at all the things in our lives, even the things right now we do not understand. And we begin to trust you in the midst of that, of our not understanding, that we would have hope in who you are because of your great promises. Father, I ask that we, even today, be able to see you know, beyond the grave to what lies beyond the sun and to trust you in how we now begin to live out the rest of our lives. That we would see you as the only God who has rescued us and that we would, in turn, understand that you are the hope of the world and that everything finds meaning in your name that you would break all the, all the chains that so hold us down to our old ways of thinking, to going back and looking for our own wisdom or keeping, looking in whatever our metaphorical cookie jar is. And we would instead turn and trust you for the things that you have said. In those times that we can't remember maybe the things that you've said or see the places where you're leading, we would still trust you because we'd have a deep conviction in us that you are good. And that would result in us trusting you in all things. So teach us to begin to live out this life that you've given us as a gracious gift from your hand. And that what we would do and how we live would be worship of who you are. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.